Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, your life giving, life sustaining word. I ask, Father, that you would speak to us today from your word. Lord, you would, you would do so, Father, first and foremost, to glorify yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to sanctify your church, as well as to call sinners to salvation. Father, again, I thank you for this time and this place that you've allowed us to gather together to worship you, to hear from you. Again, Lord, be glorified this morning. And I ask these things, Jesus, in your name, for your sake. Amen. We're going to continue this morning. James chapter 5, I think it's been about two months since we've visited James, so let me, if I may, give you a brief, and I do mean brief, just kind of recap of James, just to remember where we've been. As far as the the letter is concerned, remember, we kind of give it a theme, or if I were to give you a theme, it would be faith that works, right? I think it was last Sunday, Randy made the statement in his sermon. He said that, you know, we are saved by faith alone, but, but faith is never alone, right? There's this connection between faith and works. And in part, that's what James addresses throughout this entire letter. Uh, letter okay, that, that genuine believers, true Christians, will have external evidence in their life of that internal change that is that has taken place right this book is a, a, a or this letter is a letter of practical christianity some have called it the proverbs if you will of the new testament right james addresses very practical issues sin if you will i mean he's calling out throughout the entire letter he's calling out individuals over specific sins specific things that are going on in that church and he's challenging the the, the believers that church to examine themselves, examine their actions with what they proclaim their, their faith is. So if you recall in the first chapter of James, he gives us this, this thing in verse, um, I believe it's 22, and he says that don't be, maybe it's verse 21, 22. Yes, he says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hear, hearers who delude themselves, right? So don't just hear what the word says, but do it, right? you are truly born again, you will want to do it, right? There will be this evidence of, of your faith. Chapter 2, he addresses the sin of partiality. If you recall, there were certain individuals within the church that, that had a preference toward the haves, towards the wealthy, and they had a disdain towards the have-nots. And so there was this command given in chapter 2, to show no partiality. He moves on from there, and in, in the latter part of chapter 2, he gives us this, this, this uh, a picture of what demonic faith was. Right? And if you recall, the demonic faith was this. It was a proclamation of faith, and yet absolutely no external evidence of faith. Right? It's that faith without works is dead. Again, saved by faith alone, but 
faith, true faith, right, is never alone, that there will be external evidence of that internal change. And if there is no external evidence, then there has been no eternal change. In chapter 3, he goes on and he addresses the tongue, and the tongue is a fire, right? And he calls out individuals for praising God with their tongue, and yet with that same tongue, cursing others. He says that is akin to blasphemy, and it is blasphemy, because you profess Christ, and yet then you live in such a way that denies Christ. We're going to move on today to chapter 5. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he addresses the misuse of riches. And he, and he gives us a warning of the wickedness of wealth. And so that's what we're going to be considering this morning, is the wickedness of wealth. And I want to give you our two main points that we're going to look at this morning concerning these six verses. And the first is this, is the root of the wickedness of wealth. Then we're going to look at the fruit of the wickedness of wealth. Turn with me to James chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. The rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does not resist you. James begins this section and he says, Come now. The words that he strings together in the Greek, it's an attention getter. It would be like me saying to you or, or I think to my child, Listen up. Hey, listen, listen up. And I want you to listen real good to what I'm about to tell you. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, we have to stop for a minute before we even consider who he's specifically or directly addressing in in this portion of the letter. And And I want to define for just a minute Rich. What does it mean to be rich? Now, I think it's important that we do that because it will be easy otherwise for us to just gloss over this passage and say, well, I mean, you know, Bill Gates is rich and I'm, I'm not rich, so this passage definitely doesn't apply to me, right? I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, I mean, he's, he's wealthy, right? I'm, I'm not wealthy. And again, so this, this passage doesn't apply to me. Well, it does apply to you. It applies to me. It applies to us, Okay. By rich, and this is just a, a generic, if you will, definition of what it means to be rich or to be wealthy. And we do understand that, that in part, it is a, a relative term, right? You'll take one person, compare that person to another and say, well, he is rich compared to him or to her, right? But then when you 
introduce a different set of people. Well, he's no longer rich compared to, to that person, right? So here it is, and this, this, this covers it all, I believe. To have wealth or to be rich in the most generalist of terms is to have more than what you need. It's to have more than what you need. And I think by that definition, this text applies to pretty much every one of us in here. As far as I know, every one of us in here, we have what we need. We have more than what we need. Now, also I want you to understand before we move forward in this text that it's not necessarily a sin to have wealth or to be rich. In Proverbs 10, 22, Proverbs 10, 22 says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes the rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. You see, there, there are those who God blesses with wealth. Those who have acquired that wealth, right, more than what they, they have, more than what they need, right, have done so in a way that honors God. They've acquired it. Maybe you have acquired what you have in, 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 in such a way that honors God and is used in such a way that honors God. And I think, I think when that is the case, your possessions, your wealth, However, we define that as a blessing from God. Now, in the same token, just because you don't have that doesn't mean you're not blessed by God. We were talking this past week about looking forward to serving the BSU here uh, a week from tomorrow and and doing this kind of not really Valentine-themed thing, relationship thing, uh, themed event, right? And as Randy and I were talking about it, we're talking about the blessing of relationships and the blessing of marriage, right? but it's also a blessing, or God, I would say, grants people the gift of singleness, and for those he grants the gift of singleness, right, that is a blessing as well, okay? So God blesses certain individuals with wealth, and God blesses other individuals by not giving them that same wealth that he might give another person. So I say that, that that having wealth, being rich, is not necessarily a sin, Right. But yet we know that, that it can be, right? See, many have acquired in such a way that dishonors God, right? And they use their wealth. They use what they have acquired in such a way that dishonors God. First Timothy. Chapter 6. Verse 10, he says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. For this person, for that person, wealth is not a blessing, but it is a, it is a curse. So in this text, James says, Come now, you rich. He's primarily addressing specific individuals within the church who have acquired their wealth via sinful means and motives 
and are using their wealth in wicked ways. He's in part addressing the hearers and not the doers. Chapter 1. He's, he's addressing those who were showing partiality. Chapter 2. Who were favoring the haves right, and hating the have-nots. He was addressing, addressing those with the demonic faith. Those who professed Christ, yet weren't possessors of Christ, and that was evident by their external actions. And as we dig into this text, we're going to see that their, their, their sinful acquisition of wealth and the sinful use of that wealth is, is boiled down to one main issue of the heart. And it's that issue as, as we get there that I believe implicates all of us or makes this text apply to every single one of us in some way or another. So he calls out these people and he says, come now you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. He's calling them to mourn and to grieve over the trouble and the judgment that is coming upon them as a result of their sinful acquisition and use of their wealth. Now this isn't an explicit call to repentance and faith. If if it was explicit, he would just come out and say, come now, you rich, repent. So it's not explicit in that sense, but yet it is a call to repentance and faith. What is James doing in this passage? He's exposing sin. James is calling them out for their sin. For the purpose of what? To say, you're a sinner, and I'm better than you. Burn in hell. No. He's calling them out on their sin with the desire to see them repent of that sin. I mean, that's why, that's why we expose sin. That should be our desire as we call people out for their sin. I mean, the purpose of exposing sin is what? It's to point a person to their need of grace. So when we preach the gospel, think about this for a minute. When we preach the gospel and when we evangelize, what do we do? What should we do, right? We start with the law and the nature of God, right? We start with the law so we can point out sin, right? We take individuals, or we should, or, or one of the, the many ways to do that is to take individuals to the Ten Commandments, right? And say, this is, this is God's requirements, right? That you shouldn't steal, that you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't covet, that you shouldn't blaspheme, right? You shouldn't use God's name in vain, and that you shouldn't murder, and hating is murder, and that you shouldn't commit adultery, and committing adultery is, is, is what? Or lusting is committing adultery of the heart, okay? So we take them to the law for the purpose of exposing sin, right? And then from, from that, we move on to the nature of God, right? God is holy, right? He is righteous and he is just. And God's going to do what? Because he's a just 
God, right, a just judge and a holy God, he has no choice but to punish that sin, right? And of course, that's, that's the bad news, right? Point out the sin and the bad news so then we can do what? We can take him to the cross, right? We can then move from the law to grace. But God, though we are sinners, right, deserving of his wrath, but God sent Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, right? To pay our penalty for that sin. And if we repent and turn from that sin and turn to Christ and believe in him, then God will save us from our sins, not on the basis of anything we've done, but on what Christ did. So what James is doing here is he's pointing out sin though he doesn't explicitly call them to repent and believe, he's pointing out their sin that they would repent and believe and be saved. Because primarily, I think in this text, he has in mind false convert. Okay? So who, and he might even have specific individuals in mind that have done things within this local body. Okay? I don't know. Okay? But he's calling out the false convert, the professor, and not the possessor, yet this entire text still applies to the, to, the, to the believers, right, the genuine true believers that he's addressing, right, and it applies to us today because I think as we go through this text, at least I know over the past uh, a week or two as I've studied this text, I've been utterly convicted by my own sin concerning this issue. Maybe not my life might not look to the extent that this specific individual's life looks like that James is calling out in its entirety, right? But in some form or fashion, I'm guilty here and I'm guilty there. And I suspect that many of us are, or many of us at, at one time or another will be, be tempted in these areas. And so he's, he's calling them out for their sin, that they might repent and believe, right? He's calling us out for our sin, that we would do the same. Also concerning exposing sin, I was thinking about Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 when it comes to um, church discipline. Let's, let's look at that just briefly. Again, we do this to, to establish the biblical nature of what James is doing in exposing their sin. In Matthew 18 and verse 15, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Set by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile a tax collector. The purpose of going to the brother and exposing that sin and confronting that sin is that they might repent and be restored first to God and then to the church. So again, that's what James is doing in this text. So again, I know he's coming down harsh on them, and it does sound harsh. I think it sounds harsh. It does seem harsh, but it is necessary, again, for the purpose of bringing them to repentance, right? Bringing us to repentance, right? But it also should serve as a warning to us. As we look at this text, we should be warned against this type and these types of sin. 
should force us to examine ourselves. Now back in James chapter 5, verse 2 to 3a, he says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. Now the three great items of wealth in the first century were this. Grain and clothes, precious metals, silver and gold. And if you possessed these items, right? I mean, if you had, and again, we're not talking just making ends meet, barely scraping it together. If you had these items and you had more than what you needed, you were considered wealthy to, to an extent, right? Again, we understand varying degrees of wealth, right? There are some who are, are, are just exceedingly wealthy and those who have what they need and a little more. And if you had what you needed and a little more, you were doing okay. And it's really not much different than today, right? Even as far as these items of wealth, right? I mean, food, right? Clothes, right? And precious metals, money, right? I mean, if we have the food that we need and a little more, I don't know about you, but I've got a closet full of clothes that don't even get used half the time, right? I have a job and a bank account, right? And I'm able to pay my bills and even have a little extra over here and there, right? I mean, there's not much different from the first century church as far as what was considered wealth, right? And what we would consider, you know, as, as having wealth today as well. But he says, your riches have rotted, your grain has rotted, your, your garments, your clothes are moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have rusted. This decay is happening and will happen, James says, as a testimony against you, against them and their excesses. And I was thinking about this as I was studying the text, just the first part, right? And, and this is where I began to be convicted, right? Thinking about your riches, grain is what he's talking about here, have rotted. I can't tell you how many times my wife will be cleaning out the refrigerator and she says, why did you buy that? Said, you never even opened it and expired six months ago. Well, it was a good, it was a good price. I mean, it was a good deal, right? I mean, it was, it was on sale, I thought it would be good, and we don't even eat that. But it, was, it, was, it looked appetizing, and again, it was a good price. And my riches have, have rotted. And how many times am I, am I guilty of, of doing that? It says, your garments have become moth-eaten. How many of us have clothes in our closets with the tags still on them because they were a good price? And I thought someday... I would, I would wear them. Or if you're like me, I just don't throw any clothes away. I will keep them until they disintegrate just because it's a shame to throw something away that you might could wear someday. I mean, never mind the fact that there might be people out there who have, you know, nothing at all to wear except the clothes on their back. But I mean, I might someday wear that shirt again, maybe. Again, this is where the conviction this past week really began to fall on me that in this verse alone, James is it's describing me. He's, he's addressing me. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, we know that gold and silver don't rust, right? 
They might tarnish a little bit, but we know that gold and silver don't rust. But their value is fading. I mean, and I'm not talking about time out for a second, right? Have you looked at the market on gold lately? It's doing nothing but going up and up and up and up. I'm not, I'm not talking about that, right? Precious metals ultimately have no eternal value unless those precious metals are used for the advancement of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth. You could have bought gold 40 years ago when it was 50 cents an ounce, and today it's worth I don't even know how much, 1,600 plus an ounce. That would have been a great investment, right? But you know what? If that wealth isn't used for the advancement of God's kingdom, it's worthless. It's rusting, as James says. It's fading away and will one day be consumed by fire. See, our stuff is perishing. That's what James is saying. You have this stuff and it's perishing. Again, none of it has any intrinsic, eternal value. The only eternal value that the stuff has, right, is when that stuff, again, is used for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Matthew um, chapter 6. Verse 19. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. This is where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. But what are we doing? storing for ourselves up treasures here on earth. Let's look at Luke chapter 12. I was studying this. I I was immediately thought, or or immediately thought of this man here in Luke chapter 12. Jesus um, tells us the parable of the fellow who had so much grain, had such a great harvest that he built extra barns for himself to store up those treasures. We see in chapter 12 of Luke, verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions? They told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. 
and now who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want any of us to be that guy. But how many times have I sat in my office, leaned back on the couch and thought about storing up my treasures here on earth? Have I thought about, well, if I just transfer this investment to this fund over here in about 20 years, I should be set if it goes as I think it should go. I don't want to be I don't want to be that guy. I don't want us to be that guy. Let's look at, again in Luke 12. We'll just move down to verse 33. Jesus says, "Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, and an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys." Again, the only eternal value of our stuff is when it's used for God's kingdom. It's not saying that it's bad to have stuff, right? It's not bad to have treasures as the world would see it. We shouldn't treasure any of this, okay? As a, as a believer, okay, we shouldn't treasure any of this. We shouldn't treasure the grain, right? We shouldn't treasure the clothes, and we shouldn't treasure the, the silver and the gold and the automobiles and the houses and the sports and the whatever, fill in the blank, right? We shouldn't treasure any of it. But as God gives and God blesses, and as we have those things, right, we should use those things for his glory, for his kingdom, not ours. In verse 3b of chapter 5, James says, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume you like fire. Stuff. Stuff. Possessions. Possessions will give testimony against man on the day of judgment. Wealth, riches, stuff used for self, stored for self, will save no one from judgment. Fact will only accuse, condemn. And in verse 3c, he says, It is in the last day, the last days, that you have stored up for yourself treasure. Now, it is here that we really begin to see the root of the wickedness of wealth. It's not just the storing up. You know, I know we've talked in the past in other sermons and other lessons about how, you know, sin at times is like an onion, right? I don't know. I'm kind of, there's many layers to it, right? You peel away one layer, right? Here's this sin, and you, you peel away this layer, and you peel away that layer, and there's another layer underneath it, right? And you peel away those layers, right? And there's more layers until you get down to the, to the center of it, to the core to the heart of it, okay? So the storing up of these treasures, right, is sin, Right? When used for self, consumed for self, all about self, there's a, there's a core, there's something beneath that that's even greater than that. Now, it says in the last days, right? the last days is from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven to the time that he will return, right? He says you have literally, you have stored up your treasure. You have hoarded these riches, this 
stuff. Now, hoarding, again, it's a manifestation of that, that core sin, if you will. Hoarding, yes, it's a sin, right? But there's something beneath that. However, before we get to that, that core, let's just consider the manifestation of it, hoarding for, for a moment. I, I, think, I think we're guilty of this at times, right? Different varying degrees, right? But I think experientially, I know I'm guilty of it at times, right? Again, how, how we define hoarding, you know? Again, we have not just what we need, right? We have more than what we need. We seek to acquire more than what we need for self, for us, for me, for maybe my comfort, my care, as opposed to other people. Eh, forget about them. It's about me. Just thinking about this for a moment, hoarding. I've got the shows on TV, right? Some of you have probably seen, like, Extreme Hoarders or Buried Alive or whatever. Now, now one, I watch that show, and it makes me want to just, like, like, throw everything away, you know? Not because I feel, like, convicted or sinful. It's just like, I, I don't want to live like that, so I need to clean out my closet and throw it all away, right? Um, but that's storing up for self, treasures, right? I know some of those shows, right? I mean, it's nasty, you know? I mean, I know you've, if you've seen the show, it's like... Uh, awful. Like, they're not wealthy because that's a gross house, and that's a sign of n- n- no poverty, right? But no, it's, it's the same sin. It doesn't matter how we want to define wealth again. Relative, right? But what are they doing in that person's eyes? They're storing up their treasures. It might not be my treasure, but they're storing up their treasures for themselves, Couponing. I know I'm going to say it, right? Some of us, I'm all about the couponing. My wife is like a, a, she's crazy, like as far as like getting good sales and deals and stuff. And I completely support saving money, right? I think it's a stewardship issue, right? If you have the ability to use a coupon, right? And save a dollar, I'm all for it. But these people that do this extreme couponing, you know, you know you've seen the show, right? And their entire house is like, like Walmart stocked, right? That's hoarding, right? It's, it's just a clean version of it, a sanitized, acceptable version of it. But it's, it's the same thing. It's storing up treasures here on earth, right? We do this with stuff. We do this with wealth, right? Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not me, right? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't hoard. You can go to my house. I'm not like those people on TV, right? You know? And, and I, my 401k, there's nothing in it, right? And that's all I have. So, so I'm not, I, I don't do it with my wealth either, you know? But what about our time? I mean, let's just think about that. I mean, our time is as a precious gift. Actually, it's probably more of a precious gift that God gives us than, than stuff, right? Than, 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 than wealth and silver and gold and grain and clothes, right? Is our time. Now, how many of us hoard, hoard our time? How much, how much of our time, I, I, I wouldn't want to do this, I mean, because it would just be utterly devastatingly convicting. Maybe I need to do this, right? But, you know, people carry these, like, diet journals and stuff, right? You know, like, I'm going to write down, like, what I eat and what I exercise. What if we carried journals that was like, okay, this much time, like, when I spend time on self, 
I'm going to put it here. And then over in this column, when I spend time like focused on God and, and time in his word and time in prayer and, and time like advancing the gospel and serving like his church and his kingdom, right? I'll put it over in this column, right? That's, I don't know, but I, I would be afraid to see what my journal would look like. It, it would probably be one of these things where, where the scales weren't, weren't balanced. It would be, right? Stuff, self, right? Time spent for him. See, how we treat and what we do with our stuff demonstrates what and where our treasure really is. Let's revisit Luke chapter 12. I intentionally didn't read all of those verses, by the way, at that time. Some of you probably thought, one more, right? No, I intentionally held off for this point. But Luke chapter 12, we looked at 33. We'll go on to 33 and 34. He says, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts, which do not wear out, and an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. And in verse 34, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see the same in Matthew chapter 6. Again, Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal or where your treasure is, for where, sorry, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. If your treasure is your stuff here and now, your master is your wealth, and that is where your heart is. But if your treasure is in heaven, then your master is God, for that is where your heart is. So, what is your treasure? Where is your treasure? This is something we have to ask ourselves and confront in ourselves. And I don't think it's a one-time thing because the world is constantly pulling and calling that it's about stuff and it's about money and it's about wealth. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. We have to fight that constantly. See, This is important. If your treasure is in this life, you will have no treasure in the next. If your treasure is in this life, you will have no treasure in the next. And I want to tell you about the treasure that is to come. And it's not just simply eternal life. Okay, The treasure that I look forward to as a believer 
it, it's not just simply heaven, right? I mean, d- don't get me wrong. I look forward to the day that sin is no more, that death is no more, okay? I look forward to the day that, that this body of sin and death is gone. And I have a new body, right, that is undefiled and undefilable, uncorrupted and un corruptible for eternity. I look forward to that day. I long for that day. I hope you do too. But that's not the treasure to come. The treasure to come is Christ. He is the treasure to come. He is the reward. He is the reward of eternal life. It's Christ. I want him. I want to be there with him. That's what I long for. That's what I want you to long for is Christ. All this other stuff, this, this, this new body, the new heaven, the new earth, I mean, I want that, right? But that's just like, like side benefits, right? It's Christ. The root, talked about peeling away the layers. The root of the hoarding the storing up of treasure on earth, the wickedness of wealth is this. It's idolatry. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. When anything is placed before God in importance and in priority, it is an idol and you are guilty of idolatry. Hoarding, idolatry. Storing up for yourself treasures, idolatry. Maybe the grain is your idolatry, right? Your stuff, right? Your time. And if your time is your idol, yourself is your idol. The thing is, anything can be an idol. Cars, sports, houses, work, other people, Mark chapter 10. Verse 17 to 22, the rich young ruler. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. Speaking of Jesus here, a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. So this man was self-righteous, right? Trusting in his own goodness. Jesus said to him, said looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Now listen, Jesus wasn't telling the rich young ruler, if you sell everything, then then you'll inherit eternal life. Sell everything, come follow after me on my journeys, and you'll inherit eternal life. Jesus said was, place me first. Place me first. Worship God. Worship God alone. Make me preeminent in your life. Do that, and you'll have eternal life. Said the man was sad. And they left because he had great wealth. His God was his wealth. His God was his possessions. They were his idol. He worshiped them. John Calvin said, Our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We don't need Calvin to tell us that, though, do we? I think each one of us knows that. Second point James addresses here is the fruit of the wickedness of wealth. We see that in verses 4 through 6. Really what it is, it's the fruit of idolatry, right? The stuff, the riches, the wealth. And by any means, this list isn't an exhaustive list whatsoever, right? I mean, James is seeing this in local church, right? Again, I think he's got specific uh, uh, circumstances, specific individuals that he probably has in mind as he's writing this letter, okay? So don't think for, for a moment that it's, it's exhaustive, but it is what he's addressing here, okay? I'll give you the three, and then we'll look at these. Actually, let me read the text first. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5, he says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So the three bad fruit, right? This bad fruit here, right? That James addresses is unjust activity, verse 4. Self-indulgence, verse 5. Persecution of the righteous, verse 6. So in verse 4, he says, concerning this unjust activity, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields 
which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Specifically, right? There were professing believers. I'm just saying professing here. Right? I'm going to emphasize that. Professing believers within the church, right? Who were exploiting, taking advantage of other professing believers, right? We actually had professing believers who were wealthy, right? Exploiting believers who were poor. And the wealthy were doing it so they would amass more wealth. It's how they got their wealth and they were doing it to amass an even greater wealth. Now this, of course, is expressly forbidden one in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Leviticus. Chapter 19. Leviticus, sorry, 19, verse 13. It says, You shall not press your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. We see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, it says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. Now, how do we see this? I mean, today, do we, I mean, specifically under these circumstances, how, how is this played out? Okay. I want to give you just two examples how I, I believe this is, this is played out today. Okay. There's probably numerous examples of how this might be played out today, at least in the, the Western church and in, in, in our country, what we're used to, right? And the first is this. I do believe that there are instances, and I've heard others, fortunately, praise God, I don't believe there's anyone in here who, who has dealt with this, and I hope none of us ever do, but circumstances where believers, right, professing believers anyway, will exploit other Christians or professing believers in the course of business. Right? Heard stories of, well, this guy, I mean, I needed an attorney and, and, and he went to our church, so I thought that, you know, I would go hire him because he was a Christian and so I, I could probably trust him. And then you hear this story after that that, you know, oh, I was completely and utterly taken advantage of, right? Found out afterwards that the man charged me twice what he should have charged me, you know, when he wasn't working on my case, he said he was working on my case or whatever the case might be. Right. Someone's looking for a good deal, and they think because, hey, that person who does that service goes to my church, I'll go to him because I know that I'll be able to get him for a cheaper price than I could get the guy down the street. Right? It's exploiting someone who professes Christ for the purpose of personal gain. Okay? That's what was going on in the, the first century church that James was addressing, and I believe to a, a small degree in that instance, right? Or those instances, we see it here, where it might be easy to say, hey, she sells this. He does that. I'll use them because I can save money, right? Again, doing it for personal gain. Now, I'm all for like, like business amongst believers, right? Because, hey, if I can help you in your business or you can help me, I mean, if we can work together mutually edifying one another in that, I think it's awesome, right? 
People often use it to take advantage of one another for self. I think the biggest way we see this in the church today, and not just the Western church, right? I think this is probably the, the largest instance that we see this occurring, this particular manifestation or this particular fruit of this, this wickedness of idolatry, this, this, this wickedness of wealth and abuse of riches that we see in the global church today comes from those who preach the prosperity gospel. They preach this gospel of health and wealth, exploiting those who are listening to them, following them, for this purpose of, of, of self, well, for the purpose of self. To make money. To store up their treasures here and now. So it does happen, right? Unjust activity within the church, right? It does happen today. And we have to guard ourselves against that. Verse 4, he said... Your wages cry out against, the wages that you withheld cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Lord of Sabaoth means Lord of hosts, right? And this is a reminder that James gives that judgment is coming against the wicked. Now in verse 5 of chapter, um, yeah, in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, you have lived Luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So first, the wicked wealthy acquires their wealth unjustly, right, by taking advantage of others, and then they live this ridiculous lifestyle of luxury, pleasure. James, in fact, likens this to this lifestyle to the fattening of livestock ready for slaughter, right? These individuals have indulged themselves to the limit, right? It's like when I raise chickens for meat. I want to get them as fat as I can before we slaughter them, right? And indulge them as much as I can, right? Well, that's what these individuals have done. They've indulged themselves to the limit. I think this point, this, this fruit, selfish indulgence, is probably a whole lot easier for us to see than maybe the other two at least in our own lives, how at times we have sought to satisfy self over serving Christ. We've sought to satisfy ourselves with our possessions, or we've sought to acquire possessions for the purpose of satisfying self, for taking it easy, for living a life of pleasure. I think there's a connection between this, a direct connection between this point here, the selfish indulgence right, and the sin of idolatry. We seek to completely and utterly indulge self and live luxuriously, right? I think it reflects the fact that our idol is us, self, me. I satisfy self, if I seek to satisfy self, then myself is my God. If I first seek to satisfy Christ and God, then self definitely is the idol, isn't the idol, because it can't be. The final fruit, if you would, of 
idolatry, this wickedness of wealth. It's the persecution of the righteous. In verse 6, he says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. What he's saying is that the wicked here have leveraged the legal system in their favor against others in the pursuit of their riches. Have they, have they murdered physically? Quite possibly so. I don't, I don't know the mind of James. Has it happened? Oh, I'm, I guarantee you it's happened. Throughout the course of history, has, professing, have, have, have someone, has someone who's been a professing believer sought the life of another professing believer for the, for the acquisition of wealth and riches? Absolutely it's happened. Can I give you one example? I can't, but, but I can assure you it's happened. And when it hasn't happened physically... It's happened in the heart, right? Because we know hatred of another, Jesus said, is what? Murder of the heart. Right? God says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, right? But when you hate someone, you're just as guilty as if you'd actually stuck them with a knife. When we take advantage of others for the sake of self, how is that not murder? In the heart. Storing up of treasures. The pursuit of treasure and wealth in this life. The doing whatever it takes to achieve that. The, the taking advantage of others. Okay. The living luxuriously, or the desire to live a life of wanton pleasure, right? The taking advantage of the legal system to get what you want when it comes to your acquisition of wealth and riches, whatever that might be for you, right? That's what the world says is good, is it not? I mean, is that not how the world operates? It is. The world says this life is all we have, so we just need to live it to the fullest, right? Eat, drink, be married, for tomorrow we die. So go out, pursue riches, pursue fame. You know what? Do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good, and do whatever it takes to get that. Now, it's sanitized. We know that, right, that it's sanitized by the world. So, oh, don't, you don't want to hurt people to do that or take advantage of people to do that. But it's all around us. The world says this is good. Pursue it. Last night, uh, my wife um, had a TV program on in the living room, and it, it, it's, um, it's called Storage Wars. Has anyone seen Storage Wars? Some of you have? Okay, what it is, I'm going to set this up, because I think this, this show, it was incredible timing, God's timing, right, completely illustrates this text to a degree. So there's this show on whatever channel called Storage Wars, and what it is is people have storage units, okay, and they don't make their payments. And so the people that own the storage unit companies auction off the goods that are in those storage units that haven't been paid for, right? So one, you have people. Now, just because you have a storage unit doesn't mean you're hoarding. All right, I'm going I'm to clarify that. I've got two storage units, okay? But I don't have a garage. Um, now, there are stuff in my storage units that, that, that probably shouldn't be there because they should have been given away or thrown away a long time. Um, but I don't have a garage, right? But no, um, 
Just because you have a storage unit doesn't make you a hoarder, right? But you have these people who have these storage units. You're watching this show, and a lot of it, it's clearly just like people's treasures on earth. I mean, it's, it's evident, right? They're putting their stuff in there. They're not paying on it. It's obviously not needed. It's obviously not that important. But yet it is because they're storing it up for themselves, right? So they haven't made their payments on it. So then you have this other group of people that want to swoop in and do whatever they have to do, regardless of whether or not it's moral or ethical, right, or biblical, to acquire the stored up treasures of these, 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 these people who didn't pay and gain it as treasure for themselves that they may be wealthy as a result. I'm like, wow. I mean, this is like the text illustrated in our life. People are hoarding, and then these other hoarders of wealth come in and take what they're taking, and they do so in vile. If you've seen the show, I mean, these people are just absolutely vile and vicious in the acquisition of, of, of these, these treasures, and they're not treasures. Someday they'll all burn up. But the world says it's good. I know people that I work with, they watch that show. It's great. I love it. Wouldn't it be cool to be able to go in and swoop in and do the same thing and make some money? And then you start to think, yeah, you know, we've got some storage companies in aid. I bet there's people that don't pay. Right? The world is calling us to live like that. The world is calling us to do that because it's good. And it's not good, folks. It's not good. We need constantly to evaluate self against what the world says is right, against what the world says is good, to what God says is right, to what God says is good, and then to seek this, not to seek that, not to seek those treasures because those treasures are perishing. But our treasure Our Christ, who is our treasure, is eternal. And someday, I will be with him, with my treasure, with my reward, eternally. I want that to be the desire of your heart, the desire of your life, to seek that reward. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you are the only lasting treasure. You are the reward for your children. And yet sometimes, Lord, it's hard because the world is calling, the world is pulling, the world is grabbing us in their direction. And that leads to death. And I don't want that. I want you. And I don't want my heart and my mind and my life pulled in that direction. I want it to be pulled into you. And Lord, that's my desire, not just for my life, but Jesus, that's my desire for, for this church, for these people, that they would seek you, that they would seek to store up their treasures in heaven. We can't do it apart from you. Lord, I know you've saved us and you've saved us from the power and the domain and the control of sin and this world and all it has to offer. 
So we know that we're free from that, but yet we still need you to do that in our lives constantly. Sanctify us, Lord. Empower us, Lord. We need your grace and your mercy as much today as we need it the day you saved us. And so I ask, Lord, that you would continue to pour it out upon us, that you would do it again first for your glory, but also for our good, the good of your children, the good of your church, and that you would do it as a means to send the gospel forward, and that you would save many as a result. Lord, keep our hearts and our minds forever focused on you. We love you, Jesus. And we praise you. And I ask these things now in your name for your sake. Amen.